Lifestyle matters, it's more than money. I'm Leanna Wachniak in for Faisal Karmali today, <laughs> here with Dave Popovich. Well, Leanna, thanks for sitting in. Uh, Faisal couldn't be here today, and I appreciate uh, you joining me for the show today. We've got a good show. Uh, markets have been really volatile, mm -hmm. uh, and there's lots of uncertainty around interest rates mm -hmm. and uh, inflation and the path of rate hikes and so on and so forth. And we're going to try to make some sense of that, um, not just from an economics perspective, but how to profit and protect using multiple asset classes, right? Not just talking about maybe stocks or bonds, but what can you do beyond their traditional asset classes to either you know, provide some defensiveness in your portfolio or look for ways to, um, to create opportunity. That's right, and we've got the perfect guest to talk about that today. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Michael Sager, who's been with us before. He's a vice president of the multi-asset and currency uh, group at CIBC Asset Management. Uh, Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hello, uh, good to be here, thanks. Well, why don't we start with maybe just um, uh, giving you a bit of an open end to, to give us your sense. We're, whatever, two and a half months, I suppose, into the year. Uh, maybe give us a sense of how you thought 2023 was shaping up and, and where we are at this point in time. Well, from an economic perspective, I, I think we're, we're still in that tricky world where if you look at some of the, the hard data, things like labor markets. We had US payrolls this morning, of course. Labor market data, household balance sheet data on income and consumption. It's been pretty resilient, and I think more resilient than we'd expected, um, most people had expected. And then on the other side of the coin, you've got leading indicators, things like uh, consumer and business sentiment that's been consistent with recession for months now. You've got yield curves, which are really quite significantly inverted. Again, a classic lead indicator of recession. So good current conditions, but ominous forward looking. And, and then the question is, how do we resolve? Um, we're of the opinion, we have been of the opinion, that we're headed for a mild recession, whether it's Canada, the US, Europe. Um, and the common theme, the, the, the thing that resolves that contradiction between the good hard data and, and the poor leading indicators are central banks. So the Fed is going to keep policy relatively tight, perhaps a little bit tighter through the first half of this year until inflation really starts to decelerate a lot more. Um, haven't seen it yet. And, and so the bias on the Fed is to, to keep squeezing. Um, and so that's how we resolve from, you know, okay economy right now to a mild recession in perhaps Q2 or in the summer. Uh, it's all about central banks still. So, Michael, if we go if we go to the inflation idea for a second, um, I would say consensus in the market is that we're going to see inflation starting to fall, and it might even start to fall fairly aggressively in the first half of this year towards the middle of the year. And some of that has to do with the base effect, year-over-year -year measurements, and so on and so forth. Um, is is your opinion? Are you consensus on this that we we are are anticipating to see that fall down into that three to four percent range from where we are today? Yeah, top end of three uh, would would be where we are. There's 
going to be two parts to this inflation slowdown. The easy part, that's what we're doing at the moment. You talked about base effects. Um, that's going to be uh, driving the, the first part of the disinflation. So we go down into the high threes. The hard part, and that's where the central banks have got to earn their money, is to get us from high threes down closer to policy targets, which are 2%. Um, that's difficult because there you've got to force unemployment rates up. You've actually got to meaningfully slow economic activity. You can't just rely on base effects. So we're in the easy part, the hard parts to come. And that's why central banks are going to keep policy tight for a long time. For our listeners who are going to the grocery stores every day and seeing their grocery bills just continuing to go up and up, what kind of key pieces of data are we looking for or should we be or were we waiting to hear about in order to indicate a turn there when it comes to inflation? I think, Leanne, the, the key ones are in the service sector. So things like rents. Um, rents are sticky. They don't, you know, the trend doesn't shift much. Um, and they've been strong. So the inflation in rents, as we all know, has, has been very strong. Um, that's going to take time to turn around. So that's a big one. Um, uh, I, I, so I would focus there on the service sector. Goods, you know, sometimes you get inflation, sometimes you get this or even deflation. Again, goes back to base effects. But service sector inflation sticks around and, and needs some effort from central banks. Michael, is there a scenario under which you could see, so we, we hear about um, there's a hard landing and the soft landing, that's language that's been kicked around for a long time. And then there's this idea of a no landing, I would say has sort of come up over the past um, month or so. Is there a scenario that you can see under which employment can stay relatively strong? I, you know, I, like you, I think uh, unemployment is going to increase a little bit but employment stays strong and we see wage inflation start to come down and in effect create a scenario where there is this no landing. Uh, you know, we just maybe slow growth, but we're not going to, we're not going to move into recession or, or any mild or deep recession. Is there a scenario that you conceive with, uh, with that? Yeah, I guess um, that used to be called sort of the Goldilocks, not too fast, not too slow in terms of growth not too fast to generate inflation, not too slow to cause a re recession. It's very difficult. Um, uh, you know, at the moment, for instance, profit margins have started to um, narrow. It, it would be a strange world where if that trend continues, corporates don't um, reduce their uh, employment their labor force. Um, it would be a strange world also where, you know, at the moment, demand for labor is pretty strong. Um, a strange world where suddenly wages just stop going up or uh, wage inflation becomes very moderate. There's no, there's no catalyst for either of those things to happen. 
And so we're much more in the camp that, you know, the longer that growth remains good, uh, the more policymakers are going to have to do because you're building in more and more uh, imbalances within economies. So uh, you might prolong the pain for, and get some short term gain. But ultimately, no, we think it's you've got to have an adjustment. Okay, so it is the sort of the traditional playbook that uh, that you believe has to play out here to take some of that demand out and bring down uh, bring down um, uh, that imbalance and ultimately bring inflation down. Okay, that's good. But given that there's some complexity, you are part of a team that has access to a number of different asset classes uh, with an absolute return strategy, and and what that means for the layperson is that you have the ability to do a number of different things to try to generate a positive return uh, in markets, regardless of their direction, whether they're going up or down. So maybe we could just start with this idea of, of multi-asset and talk to us about, you know, beyond just the normal stocks and bonds that people think about, what, what other asset classes do you guys look at? Well, we, uh, we take positions in currencies as well, whether it's the Canadian dollar, the US dollar, or, you know, EM currencies, things like uh, the Indonesian rupiah, for instance, uh, and commodities too, um, gold, oil, uh, industrial metals. Um, so a, a broad set of assets that react differently. You know, as you go through the economic cycle, you, you want to position differently in each one of those asset classes depending on what growth and inflation are doing. And then, Michael, beyond just the asset classes themselves, there's other things that, that your team, tools your team has available. I'm thinking about perhaps being short the market, not just long the market, and using options or derivatives in some cases to, to diversify risk and so on and so forth. Now, I don't, we don't have to go into the details of, of that, Leanna. Mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. gets pretty sophisticated. But having all of these tools at your disposal, um, and looking through the lens that you described to us in the, in the first segment that we did with you, maybe talk to us a little bit about where you see, uh, what, what, what asset classes you see current risks in. And then once, once we've tackled that, we'll look at opportunity. Well, I, I would say for the near term, given our view about uh, the likelihood of a recession, um, equities are, are going to be challenged. You know, we've seen them selling off over the past week, including today. Um, expect that to continue um, as markets adjust to this view that we have. I don't think markets are priced um, to expect a recession. As they get more consistent with that view, it, it suggests that equities are going to be challenged for a little while yet. Uh, on the other side of the coin, bonds look attractive to us. So bonds uh, are much more um, constructive asset class than they have been for a long time now. And what about when you look into the currency markets? You mentioned the Indonesian rupiah. Um, uh, let's talk about that. Uh, so the currency and commodities. I mean, we are in Calgary, so I think you're your view of oil and and the, um, the the factors that will influence the price of oil here over the short term would be of interest. Yeah, and it, it's always important, you know, to think between our short term view and then our much longer term view. You know, out multi years, 
whether that's for equities, bonds, currencies, or commodities. So for currencies, we're really focused in this uncertain market environment on fundamentally strong currencies. Currencies of countries with low debt, uh, with strong uh, capital flows, with attractive valuations, things like that. So um, currencies that come to mind would be the Mexican peso that's done extraordinarily well over the last couple of years and continues to look attractive. Um, I mentioned and you mentioned the Indonesian rupee, the Indian rupee as well. They all have that fundamentally strong uh, foundation uh, that will help them perform well. And then, you know, in currency, you're long something and you're also short something. Where are we short? Well, the Chinese renminbi is not attractive to us at all. Growth um, is uh, going to disappoint. Um, interest rates are low. These are all things that drive currencies. And Canadian dollar is not attractive to us at all at the moment. Um, given some of the challenges in the Canadian economy. So we always have to think long and short for commodities. At the moment, you know, particularly for oil, we're not constructive and it's driven by our view on growth. Um, so we think the oil price can fall a little bit from here. Longer term, we're much more constructive. The, um, supply of oil is relatively constrained. Demand will recover. And so longer term, much more positive outlook. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about um, about opportunities. I, I guess we've talked a lot about risk here. Um, where, do you, where do you look to right now as you're positioning? You've got all these tools available to you. Where are you trying to generate, where do you think you're going to be generating return um, over the balance of this year? Definitely in fixed income. So, you know, where we are in yields now is much more attractive. You think about a 10-year a bond or at the short end, even more um, of yield curves. So fixed income looks attractive. Uh, you can include some sovereigns, but also corporate bonds. High quality corporates look very attractive to us. So that's definitely a nice core part of a portfolio. Um, I said that equities are going to face some challenges in the short term. But again, you know, if you extend your investment horizon, most people are, you know, they're long term investors. On that basis, uh, equities are attractive. And it's a question of getting through the next few months of um, difficult economic conditions. Once we're through that, equities are going to be increasingly um, attractive. So bonds good for now. Equities as we get into the second half of this year. Um, and then in currencies, some of the names that I mentioned, you know, Mexico, uh, Indonesia, India, Brazil is another one that we're re really looking for some attractive returns now and in the long term. 
So the emerging market currencies in some of those countries that will likely benefit from business moving away from China, um, uh, likely to remain strong uh, and participate, I suppose, on the upside. Now, when you say that, you're saying it relative to the Canadian dollar, relative to the U.S. dollar, or relative to the international basket. What is this relative to? Europe, so the euro, the pound, where we see lots of challenges, uh, Canadian dollar. Uh, so it would be relative to those. And then, you know, the, the US dollar ultimately is a sell for us. So uh, as you say, it's always important to think about relatives in currency. And, and Michael, we're, we're quickly running out of time for this segment, but um, you, you talked about the relative valuations of, of equities, uh, and it is quite different in different jurisdictions or different geographies around the world. Are there, are there some areas you favor over others from an equity perspective? Yes, I mean, equities broadly are, are going to be challenged for the next few months. But, you know, Canadian equities, given the composition of the index, given the, the importance of dividends, Canadian equities will, uh, I think, fare relatively better than, for example, US large cap. The starting valuation for Canada is healthier than US large cap. And then, as I said, index composition, the importance of dividends will also help. So definitely from an equity perspective, better to have a little bit more home bias for the time being rather than less. Michael, thank you very much. We appreciate you taking some time with us today. As always, you're, uh, we value your input. Always a pleasure. We've been joined by Michael Sager, Vice President, Multi-Asset and Currency at CIBC Asset Management. Now, there's been some recent changes uh, around estate planning mm -hmm. uh, that we have to talk about. And let's face it, the estate planning, or what we call the legacy bucket, is a really important piece of the overall retirement experience. And it's not just financial, but it's ensuring that, ensuring that your family is left in a way that there's no problems. Right. It's the way that you want to actually leave your legacy to people. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and unfortunately these things take planning. You can't, they just don't happen on their own, right? So we're, we're very happy to have Catherine Zhang, uh, a regular recurring guest on the show back with us. She's a partner at Walsh LLP. Catherine, thanks for joining us. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So Catherine, I'm gonna start with one of the questions that we, I think, get most commonly from our clients. And it's, what happens if I own a property that's not in Alberta? and I want to leave it to my family? That's a great question. And I think um, we follow up with additional questions. So um, we talk about, well, is this something that you are willing or you're able to transfer during your lifetime? Or is this an asset that you want to leave as a specific bequest in your will? Um, from, you know, and there are considerations for both ways. Um, if you're wanting to do this transition during your lifetime, um, sometimes that's a really good thing because then you can watch your family members enjoy that piece of property. Um, if there's more than one family member who may potentially want to have that property, you can work out that potential family conflict while you're still alive. And the biggest referee and the most effective referee is going to be yourself. So that's a, you know, that's a huge plus and a huge mitigating factor for uh, future litigation down the road. Uh, the 
the other factor that we ask clients to think about is oftentimes these pieces of property outside of province are vacation homes. Uh, so a disposition of that vacation home could lead to a tax consequence during your lifetime. Uh, and there will need to be discussion about whether or not it's um, feasible for your estate uh, to to um, finance that consequence um, or whether it makes more sense uh, to wait um, until you're passing so that there's a little bit more liquidity in your estate, um, either through life insurance or other assets. Um, the other thing we think about too, and um, regardless of if you're doing it during your lifetime or in your will, um, is uh, how does that affect the recipient and their family situation and potentially financial situation. So by them receiving that property, they're, they're um, receiving a property that is now potentially subject to capital gains. Um, and what does that look like if they have a family? Does it form um, part of a matrimonial asset? Does it form part of family property? Um, those are all discussions that are helpful to have way in advance. Uh, of the actual transfer event happening. Um, some people like to do this during the lifetime because it also means that you avoid having to go through probate, which is something regardless of uh, which province that property is in, you are going to have to face um, if uh, you have a piece of property outside of Alberta, well, even in Alberta that you're dealing with on death. So we sometimes get the question, do you need a second will or a separate will for that property that's maybe in a different province? Um, I would say it depends. I've seen clients who have two wills um, simply because they want to make sure assets are administered at the same time rather than have a waiting period. Uh, but certainly it's not necessary uh, to have two wills, um, one dealing with your home province and one dealing with um, property outside of the province. Um, you know, there are other factors that that individual may want to think about, including, well, what's all included if I have to go through the probate process? Um, will other pieces of property that I deal with have to get included in that additional province? We're really lucky here in Alberta um, that our probate fees are based on, um, they're not based on a percentage of what your estate is worth. They're capped at a certain amount. Uh, and unfortunately, in other provinces, such as BC and Ontario, uh, that's not the case. And so I know uh, um, that sometimes that's also a factor of why people um decide to get two wills, uh, but ultimately you're going to want to talk to a practitioner in a, you know that other province and maybe your home province and an accountant to figure out whether or not that's necessary for you. There's some changes. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit, Catherine, if I may, but there's some changes. The new trustee act that uh, has come into play in February. Part of the mandate, uh, Leanna, of our show is to make sure that we keep people current of what's happening in all aspects of what might affect their retirement. And so what does this change mean for uh, for executors? What is the change? And then, and then let's talk about what the implications of the change are. 
That's great. So um, the the Trustee Act is new as of February 2023. Um, if you take a look at it from purely a length perspective, it's doubled. <laughs> so um, you, the argument is there have been a lot of changes. Um, the Trustee Act applies for trusts um, and it applies in any situation where you may act in a trustee capacity. Um, there is a specific section in the Trustee Act that says, however, this act or the new rules do not apply to you acting as an executor of the estate uh, for that your you know your personal representative duties you look at the estate administration act you looked at you look at the wills act and the surrogate rules but if you finish you know your act as the executor or the personal representative of the estate and the will has imposed some testamentary trusts and then you now step into that role and you now take on a role as trustee this new trustee act applies um, I would say from a bottom line perspective, um, there are two major changes uh, that I would flag for anybody acting in a trustee position. The first one is there are um, now standardized reporting requirements and express reporting requirements uh, that the trustee needs to comply with um, in order to um, sufficiently be discharged of their duties. Uh, previously, there was just kind of this vague statement vague expectation that yes you're re required to report um, on a regular basis to certain individuals uh, and if those individuals uh, are not satisfied they can make a court application now um, there are specific requirements you have to um, uh, report to what is called a qualified beneficiary um, and if you as a beneficiary don't fall under that definition you can make an application or put a notice in that you want to fall under that definition so that you are entitled to that accounting. Um, and then there's time periods that you've got to pay attention to. So um, I think uh, it's a really good thing for both trustees and beneficiaries to give everybody certainty on what the standard is. Um, the other thing that people are going to want to pay attention to is um, if you are named as a trustee in a particular document uh, and you have been named because your parents thought yeah my, you know my my son or daughter is a lawyer or an accountant and they're gonna or, or a financial advisor and they're gonna have special knowledge and the ability to carry carry this uh, duty out uh, more efficiently because of um, what their livelihood is you are, should be on notice that you're now going to be held high uh, to a higher standard of care. So the standard of care for a you know a regular trustee is going to be what would the normal person do? What would a reasonable person do? Um, if you are in a profession that would um, warrant you or which would give you a higher degree of specialization, you're going to be held to that standard. So be on alert <laughs> if you're your parents or your friends have named you as executor because of the position you have uh, in employment. Thank you for that update, Catherine. We're going we're to have to leave it, uh, leave it there. Um, but I think that is, we've been put on notice yet again. And, and I think people sometimes just ex think it's a bit of a privilege to be asked to be in these different roles. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we want to push back on that. It may be a privilege, but you got to understand that it's a real responsibility as well, uh, and you need to get professional advice right. and guidance on 
what is going to be required of you. That's fair. Yeah. Catherine, thank you for joining us uh, uh, today and sharing all that with us. And we'll keep in touch with you as, as things develop uh, further. Always. It's a pleasure. All right. We've been joined by Catherine Zhang, who's a partner with Walsh LLP here in Calgary. Um, Leanna, you know, the markets have been really tough uh, last year. We've, we've got headlines that really invoke a lot of anxiety and fear for people, mm -hmm. um, whether it's geopolitical or financial or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And all of those things elicit an emotional reaction. That's right. And watching your portfolio on a daily basis does not make those emotions go away. So there is something that you have to be able to do in order to help mitigate what you're feeling. Or if you think about the retirement experience, right, uh, retirement hopefully will be decades long, right? But emotionally, sometimes we're experiencing it day to day. So, so we got this long time, this long term vision and a lifestyle that we plan for ourselves. But boy, these headlines can really derail you, right? And so we've got a terrific guest to help us understand how we might, um, I don't know, protect ourselves is the right phrase. We'll find out in just a minute. But Dr. Bruce uh, uh, Hutchison is a retired clinical psychologist. He's also the author of and I love the name of this book, it starts with emotions don't think. I love that piece. Mm -hmm. Emotional contagion in a time of turmoil. We certainly have that. Uh, Bruce, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. I was going to say, let's let's start with the book. Let, tell us a little bit about the book, why you wrote it, and what it's about. Okay, well, you know, I was aware of the uh, heightened emotions in society that cause things like turmoil and divisiveness and all kinds of various uh issues, uh, emotions are flying high, and uh, things are changing. And so I think we have to learn how to deal with the emotions. And that's why I wrote the book, to help people realize that. People were using emotions to think, but emotions can only feel. They don't think. So, you know, we can help deal with that in some ways by uh, learning how to handle the emotions. Bruce, in your, in your clinical experience and, and your education, uh, does it get any easier as we get older in recognizing this, uh, you know, and handling the emotional impact and trying to then change or put some rational rigor around it? Or does it get harder as we get older? Well, it begins to get easier, I think, when you get into your 60s and uh, you get wiser in your 60s and you have knowledge and it can help you handle things. But then as you get into your 70s and 80s, it gets more difficult because our brain begins to play tricks on us. And so sometimes people can get more emotional and quickly react when they didn't used to. So it can be a problem, especially when you have the turmoil going on there with the stocks going up and down and the political aspects changing and, and um, being more divisiveness uh, here in Canada as well as down in the U.S. And it can certainly be an issue for many people these days. So can you tell us, how do people recognize when they're having a strong emotion? What should they be doing about it at that point in time? Well, um, when they're having a strong emotion, they would probably need to realize that um, they're reacting quickly or strongly. And, and maybe they're using a swear word or thinking that. So if I said to you, why are you asking me that question? That would probably be an emotional reaction on my part. So a person can then reflect on what they're doing, what they're saying, and then say, oh, then sorry, maybe I should have cut back on that and uh, kind of apologize to catch up with your, let your brain catch up with yourself for a mo few moments. And I say, can you repeat that question, please? And then I can prepare myself to say something with more wisdom. So, yeah, yeah. So just be polite about it and catch yourself with things. Bruce, one of the things that, that we notice, and again, 
we're not clinical psychologists by any stretch of the imagination, but there seems to be a, a pile-on effect. So, you know, what, what somebody reacts to, uh, my experience tells me, is not always the underlying issue that they're dealing with. Um, and so there's two elements to that, right? It's the person that uh, is getting that, that um, emotional reaction. But as the, as the person dishing out that emotional reaction... So first of all, if, is that true that it's often you know, triggered? What comes out may not be the actual triggering event. And if so, how do you actually unpack or uncover what it is that's truly bothering you that you're reacting to? That's a difficult thing to do. It takes some time, um, but that's a good point. It's something underneath what's going on and with yourself and with other people. And so it's important to be aware of that with others. If they're reacting to you in a strong way, then don't take it personally because there may be something going on in their life that's triggering their emotion that they're not telling you about. So if someone's angry about politics, maybe they're upset because they've had some hurt in their life. You don't know for sure, but that would make sense because people will usually react in a personal way, uh, but they don't really identify that and they'll tell you about it. But if they're saying, well, you know, in person X is, is a, and then they use a swear word, then you kind of sense, well, that emotion comes from some other place. Uh, so you go down inside yourself and become more empathetic. Empathetic doesn't mean that you have to agree with what they're saying, though. You can say, gee, it must be tough to be that way, or I see it's been hard for you. Um, and, um, but they won't probably go into that. You know, they're all talking about what they're saying. So then, for example, they might say, yeah, that leader certainly has been good, bad, whatever. They use an emotional word. And you can say, yeah, I can see how you feel that way. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, she's been tough or he's been tough. It's been difficult for you. And uh, yeah, and then you can start to talk about yourself and how it's reacted to you too and have some empathy there. And that way you can start to get into more, you know, deeper things with that person and get away from the really contentious issue that they want to talk about. People want to be heard and understood. That's the basic thing that's going on and they use politics to do it. Yeah, I think about, Liana, a lot of the, um, you know, the conversations we'll have. And, and, and Bruce, you talk about, um, you know, emotional contagion in a time of turmoil. And there's lots of headlines, right? There's lots if you want to, you know, read the news to get be concerned about today, right? And it drives strong emotion. Um, but but I find it interesting that, that we'll get caught on those things. And often it is eliciting something underneath that, right? That we've got to try to unpack or uncover, if we kind of want to settle the mind and get that anxiety down and any thoughts you have around, around that, when you've got this strong emotion to a headline, okay. And you want to, you want to lash out at something or, you know, the whole world's terrible. How do you get that under control? Well, you start with where the person's at. It's hard to get into the underlying feelings, you know, with that individual, because, you know, you're not uh, doing psychoanalysis with them or therapy with them. So you start with where they're at. And, um, you know, I, again, they may have been hurt by something. So tell me about a situation where you found that you had to pay too much money for something. Let's say, for example, because, you know, um, prices are going up and uh, people are debating whether groceries are going up or not or whether the, the uh, grocery stores are making too much money. And so I start with where they're at and say, that must be hard for you, right? And uh, so do you kind of feel left out sometimes in life? And, they may, and we may think, yeah, they do. That's why they're reacting that way. But they may say, no, they don't. That's because, you know, they don't want to admit anything like that. Um, and so it's, it's tough. It's, it takes a long time to unpack this stuff, as you're saying. 
you know, and uh, so it takes a while to do that. So you can do this over a period of time with that person. That's a person you have a relationship with, um, you know, and gradually get down to the issues. Um, yeah. So what would it be like to not be able to afford to pay your your rent or or pay for your groceries? Do you do you, do you worry about needing the food bank, whatever? And then they'll so we'll talk about those kinds of things and how far does it go? Well, this person might say, no, I don't want to go. I'm not going to go to the food bank. I don't need that. I'm not that bad. Well, good, good. They'll, you know, can say that people can be in tough times when they have to do that. And then it's a way to start to show some empathy as well. Bruce, I want to thank you for that. It's, um, this is, there's lots to unpack as we talk about. We'll have to continue to have you back and help us and remind us of these things. But I want to, I want to thank you very much for you providing some context and some input on uh, on this topic. Okay, yeah, you're welcome, glad to be here. Dr. Bruce Hutchinson, who's a retired clinical psychologist, also the author of Emotions Don't Think, Emotional Contagion in a Time of Turmoil. Mm -hmm. All right, we're clearly in a time of turmoil. And you know what, I'm not sure there's any period of time where there isn't turmoil, <laughs> right? right? So I think controlling emotions and making sure you've got long-term strategy and you stick to a discipline to make sure you get through all this stuff is really important. And that strategy is something we're going to be talking about at our next seminar, Tuesday, March 21st, 7 p.m. We'll be live in person at the uh, Four Points by Sheraton in Calgary. You need to go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Okay, and uh, I want to thank you for joining uh, us on another edition of More Than Money on behalf of Leanne and myself, Dave. Um, we look forward to chatting with you next week. And if there's any of our past segments that you're interested in, remember you can always get them by podcast or by going to morethanmoneyradio.com. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.